Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we micro-dot your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this blast from the past edition from the days when this show was called Discovery and was produced by a large team of volunteers, we look back to human lecking, nanocars, printed spies and dolphin terrorists. Mobile phones have changed human behaviour. From 2001, six years before the iPhone was introduced, here's Dr Tim Baines reporting on one of the ways mobile phones started changing human courtship behaviour. And in 2001, this story was sampled at a low resolution. Men who get a mobile phone for Christmas could also be receiving a powerful mating tool, say UK researchers. Their work suggests that men compete with each other to flaunt their mobile phones in public and that women probably are attracted to their displays. Robin Dunbar and John Lysett from the University of Liverpool published the results of research carried out over months in a pub in central Liverpool. They found that men flaunt their mobile phones in public as if they were lecking, a technical term for animal behaviour referring to the habit of males to gather together and compete through vigorous displays. The more other men were nearby, the more likely men were to start flaunting their phones. Lysette said this is typical of a lek. Now a new study led by Dunbar has found that women are more likely to seek relationships with show-offs and risk-takers. Dunbar and his colleague Susan Kelly asked 60 women to rate the attractiveness as potential partners of men who were described as daredevils or helpful or neutrally. The researchers chose daredevil behaviour because it's a common type of showing off. For example, says Dunbar, men are more likely to take risks crossing the road if there are more women nearby. The women said they were more likely to get involved in both short-term and long-term relationships with men who took risks. And when men were asked to predict how the women would choose, they got it dead right. Showing off does work, and men know it, says Dunbar. It's depressing. The research didn't actually include a description of a man showing off his phone in the latest study, Dunbar says, I don't think women are bowled over by this kind of gadgetry as such. I assume it has more to do with flaunting it. Thank you, Tim. In 2005, Matt Clark reported how American spooks have added surveillance to our printers. Here's Matt's news story, and then a follow-up story and discussion with Chris Stewart from the following week's show. The United States Secret Service has admitted to working with major printer manufacturers to secretly code every single colour printout for the last 10 years. Claims of this practice were first raised in PC World last year, however, it's taken until now for the Secret Service and the manufacturers to come clean. Internet privacy organisations say they have managed to crack the code which appears on all printouts on all Xerox printers and are currently working on other brands. The codes appear as tiny yellow dots which are almost impossible to see with the naked eye but if the page is viewed with a blue light under magnification they appear black and their pattern can be clearly seen. 
The unique pattern of dots on each page reveals the serial number of the printer as well as the date and time of the print. Mr. Schoen from the Foundation says the information could be a threat to people who live under repressive regimes or had a legitimate need for privacy. He said it reminded him of a Soviet Union program to record sample typewriter printouts to track the origins of underground self-published literature. The Secret Service maintains that these measures are to stop people counterfeiting money with high-quality colour printers. In coming weeks, Discovery will provide a more in-depth look at this practice. And keep in mind that when Matt keeps telling you this was 10 years ago, 2005 is 15 years ago from now. If you think that you're anonymous by having printed out something without your name on it and sent it off to the government with a big rant on it, you might want to think again, because it's going to depend on what kind of printer you've used. They may be able to look at it with a really, really fine microscope-style thing and figure out exactly who you are and where you are and where they can find you. Matt Clark's back again this week to tell us in a bit more detail about this spookiness in our printers. Matt, what's going on? Yes, Chris, it is a little bit scary, and as I'm researching it further and further, I'm finding it that it's it's becoming scarier and scarier. As we said, in the, for those who missed the news last week, basically what it, what has happened, and this has all happened 10 years ago, you have to remember that, for, for the last 10 years, this is what's been going on. Every single time that you have printed something on a laser color printer, it has imprinted a secret code on every single print job that you, have, that you have done, which reveals your printer's serial number and the date and time of the print. Every single time? Every single time. If you have the, um, of all the, the, the major printer manufacturers, like your, your Xerox, uh, Lexmark, uh, Tektronix, all those, all those big boys who do the, the high quality color printers, if you've been using one of those and printing anything that's in color, you have imprinted on that a secret code that anyone can read using the right equipment. Now, this isn't, I'm assuming, a you know, really small, fine letter saying, Matt Clark printed this, go and get him. Here's Almost. Where he so what does it look like? Well, what they come out as uh, very tiny dots, uh, little tiny yellow dots. Now, on a, um, on a Xerox brand printer... They, they imprint this code in a grid of um, 15 by 8, um, very tiny dots. It's only um, about the size of a postage stamp. It's repeated and repeated over and over, on, on at least on the Xerox ones. It's different with the other manufacturers. But it's very, very faint yellow dots that because the contrast is so um, small between a white paper or, or most other print uh, colours that it's printed on top of, it can't be seen with the naked eye. What it can be seen with, however, is if you you know those uh, those blue lights that they use on CSI or those yeah, forensics type yeah. shows that sort ultraviolet. of ultraviolet. Oh no, not ultraviolet. All you need is a <clears throat> blue light. Uh-huh. So those special blue uh, blue lens torches. You don't need the special um, funky goggles that they have. But um, if you have one of those blue torches and a magnifying glass, you can see the special dots, mm. the special revealing codes on the printouts of cool. your... So these are actual microdots because they're microscopic dots. Yes, they're, they're not microdots in the sense like of other microdots like they spray on cars and things which um, have actual um, data inside them 
the dots are the data themselves, the arrangement of the dots. The, the organization Electronic Frontiers Foundation has taken up the challenge of decoding these um, series of dots in the printers. Now, they've only been so far able to decode the, um, the, the dots that are appearing on the Xerox printers, but they have been able to... If you go to their, their website, www.eff.org, you can see an example of what they actually look like and how the, um, the code is worked out. But it's one thing to have a, um, a code of your serial number. You might think, oh, big deal. Someone can find out my serial number all the time, or the, the date and time that I printed something out. But it actually is a big deal because for what most people don't know is when you buy a printer, especially if you're a, a company or uh, if you buy any high-end type of printer, you're, the, the place that you bought it from is going to record some details, even if it's only your Visa card number. And so what can happen, let's say you're a member of the Falun Gong or something like that, and the, um, the Chinese government gets a hold of this printout that you've stuck on the side of their embassy or something like that, they can take it, use a, get a blue light from Dick Smith, and a microscope, or not just a magnifying glass, they don't even need a microscope. And they can decode um, the series of dots on the printout, ring up the manufacturer, if they have an agreement with the manufacturer, and say, I know the serial number of this printout. Can you please tell me who this printer belongs to? And they can come and get you. And they can come and get you. They can come to your house and... and um, I've just had a really good idea. You know how on word processors you can put a picture in the background of whatever you're printing, you can put a, what do they call them, watermark. Yes. Why can't you just do a watermark, which is a whole grid of yellow dots? You That'd could. stuff them up. <laughs> it would, but it would de- defeat the purpose of uh, uh, whatever you were trying to... Uh, no, just, just really fine, just really light yellow. Just, you know, the same as their little dots. And you mm. can just, you know, complete this. Oh, you could, you After all, if different... you don't see their dots, why would they see yours? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But what the interesting thing is, like I said before, it has been going on for 10 years, and it was all started by the U.S. Secret Service. Now, the U.S. Secret Service approached the printer manufacturers and say, we've got a problem with you guys producing these printers, which are such high quality. Now, we're worried about people taking them and photocopying our bills and counterfeiting money. So we need a way to track them down. So that's how it all came about. Thank you very much, Matt Clark. It's nice to know that the uh, the Americans are looking out for us and the rest of the world. doesn't matter that they're infringing our freedom as long as we don't go out there and try to print money on a laser printer. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Eleven years later, this microdot laser printer watermark was to cause reality winner to be identified as the whistleblower who leaked documents from the NSA proving Russian interference in the 2016 American federal election. She printed the evidence on the office printer and then sent the documents to the Intercept newspaper. Unfortunately for her, the journalists at the Intercept were extremely careless and scanned the documents in colour for the story instead of following the standard operational security practice of rendering all documents in black and white to protect their source from being identified by the tiny yellow microdots. Reality winner is still in jail today. If Russia didn't interfere to get Trump elected, then why has the Trump administration kept reality winner in jail for leaking the proof? You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network 
and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. From the same show, Chris Stewart reported on cars built to the teensiest of proportions with discussion from Matt Clark and me. I've been doing a little bit of reading over the last couple of days of uh, Science Online, you know, the various science agencies like New Scientist gives lots of interesting stuff during the week. Nature does some good news. And I found something at the, the nature.com website about a really small car. Now, when I was a kid, I used to collect matchbox cars. I was a bit of a nerd. So did I don't I. mind admitting it. And I had to have the, you know, the, the, the luxury ones. That was my thing. Um, but toy cars are one thing. Matchbox cars are one thing. The, the one that I've been reading about, the nano car, is toy car extraordinaire. This is something else. A bunch of researchers over in the States, and of course it would be over in the States, have made what is conceivably the smallest car you could possibly make. Here's what they did. They made a, a, a chassis, which is roughly in the shape of an H, out of carbon atoms. So we're not talking a carbon car, we're talking a car made out of carbon atoms, and this thing is only a couple of nanometers across. How big's a nanometer? It's about 10 atoms. So we're talking a car which is in the order of 20 to 30 atoms across. How could they possibly put that together? Well, we'll get to that one Uh in a second. Let me just fill in the details of what this thing looks like. So you've got this frame built out of carbon atoms. That's your frame. That's your axles. You need wheels. They thought to themselves, well, what can we use as wheels? Hmm. What's something round and the size of a few atoms? I know. We'll use buckyballs. You heard of buckyballs? They're these tiny little soccer balls, which are made out of, again, carbon. And if you put carbon together in the right kind of way, you get a hollow spherical structure called a buckyball. And so you stick one of each of these on the ends of the two axles, and you've got a little car. And so they're looking at this thing, going, cool, we made a nano car. What do we do with it now? Well, let's see if we can drive it. How do you drive something that big? Well, there's a little thing called a scanning tunneling microscope. Uh, very similar to what's called an atom probe. Basically, it's a very, very fine needle. And when you bring that needle close to atoms on the surface of a substance and you put an electric field on it, you're able to drag around individual atoms or small groups of atoms by just moving this thing very slowly across the surface. You're not actually grabbing it and dragging it. You're just dragging it with the force of the electromagnetic So you're pulling along like a little... Pulling it a red wagon. Yeah, like a red wagon with a string or something like that, except that this is kind of like it's kind of like pulling magnets along. They don't actually have to so touch, they just touching, have to be close. Right. And so they did this with this car. Now, they asked themselves, how do we know that this thing isn't just being dragged across the surface? In other words, how do we know that the wheels are turning? Well, if you think about it for a second, if you've got a car facing forward, It'll tend to roll forward. If you try to drag a car to the side, it's going to be a bit harder. Mm. So they found that they were able to move this tiny nano car very easily in the direction that you'd expect if the wheels were turning, but they couldn't move it terribly easily across the surface, you know, by by dragging the wheels to the side. It just wasn't working. So the wheels were turning. The wheels were definitely turning. They also made a tiny little triangle of carbon with a wheel at each corner. Now, if you think about that for a second, the only thing that that's going to be able to do is turn around in circles. 
A donut mobile. Basically, a donut mobile. And so they used their scanning tunneling microscope to test this one out. And indeed, their little tripod car did, in fact, only turn in circles. So the scientists are really excited by this. In fact, the direct quote from Nature.com is, This is really exciting says the materials scientist Harry Hess of the University of Florida in Gainesville. doesn't go on to say why it's exciting. <laughs> a bunch of scientists standing around going, cool, we made a really small car. They need tiny roads. They we? need tiny roads. But actually, in all seriousness, um, it's worth having a think about where this could go because micromachines and nanomachines, it's an idea that's been around for a while. And there are a lot of people around the world doing research into making tiny motors and these motors sometimes they're powered by lasers by laser light using the force inherent in photons and momentum in photons sometimes they're powered by biological or chemical processes and so now you're starting to think about tiny machines okay maybe not a little matchbox rolls-royce or something like that but a little machine which can be powered by a biological or chemical reaction to then drive across a surface or move through some other structure to take things from one place to another You've got nano trucks and nano trains. Yeah, what the a power cool, of the wheel. The power of the wheel at the scale of atoms. What a cool idea. Wouldn't you say? Fantastic. I liked it anyway. Thank you, Chris. Since 2005, an Australian researcher has built nano trains running on tiny tracks for the mass transit version of nano transport. And finally, in the same episode in 2005, I collected together the dark reports of dolphin terrorists with discussion from Chris Stewart and Matt Clark. Hello, this is David Bellamy. Honestly, it is. My favourite animal is sea otter and my favourite community science show, what else but Discovery? Yes, indeed, you are listening to Discovery. And uh, finally tonight, we've got a little bit of news that didn't quite make the news. Apparently, dolphins and whales, not quite as cuddly as we all thought. Ian? Well, they indulge in gang warfare. They abuse their women. Some of them have been trained as suicide bombers. And now some armed and dangerous members are on the loose looking to kill. They may even be trying to breed a super soldier. These are dolphins. Dolphins off the coast of Western Australia have gangs that negotiate higher-order allegiances with each other when they go to war. When dolphins fight over territory and females, they have allied gangs from different regions to come and back them up. Some of these gangs have deals with other groups for support. They're the only non-primate species that seem to be capable of such complex politics. They kidnap young fertile females and assign guards so they can't escape the gang, and then they rape the captives. Dolphin, sorry? Flipper. Flipper. I'm never going to watch Flipper like this. Well, like it's this not all again. dolphins. These are this particular culture oh, off the coast of West Australia. Flipper. The American dolphins or the Antarctic, you know, they might be different cultures around the uh, world. So it's the West Australian dolphins. For I, always, sure. I always knew I'm, they were a bit funny. I always suspected them. Yeah, yeah. Well, news from Hawaii that dolphins and false killer whales, and real killer whales, are all part of the oceanic dolphin family Delphinae. False killer whales and real killer whales eat any prey, including whale species, but dolphins only eat fish. Now, you might think, why am I talking about all the differences? Well, in a sea life park in Hawaii, a 900-kilogram false killer whale and 200-kilogram bottlenose dolphin coupled and produced offspring that not only were healthy, but fertile. Get out. This is really one for the geneticist to explain. So these are wolfins. They have characteristics (laughs) such as size, weight, and number of teeth that are midway between the differences between their parents. Is that what they actually call them? Is that the actual sign... That's the name? The it's the unscientific If it's name, not, it should be. It yeah. Should yeah. Be. yeah. 
So it sort of blurs what's a species and what's Weird. not. Because, I mean, of course, you can have a horse and a donkey mate and yes. they make a mule, but that's not... That they're, like, not they're not fertile. That's right. No, these are fertile. Weird. That's weird. So on with the killer whales. So dolphins and killer whales not so far apart. Um, ABC recently showed a documentary about the killer whales in Eden off the coast of Western Australia again. Everywhere else in the world for thousands of years, humans and killer whales have been in competition for hunting giant baleen whales. But not in Twofold Bay in Eden, where three generations of the Davidson family had a deal with the local killer whales called the Law of the Tongue. They found that if they allowed the orcas to eat the tongue, they'd leave the rest of the giant carcass for the humans. They just wanted the tongue, and the humans didn't need it. The orcas cooperated with the men by alerting them, sometimes in the middle of the night, when whales are nearby, and by towing and guiding the whaling boats out to where the whales had been herded by the orcas. The humans killed the whales that the orcas otherwise wouldn't have, and so both parties gained from the deal. See, uh, look, intelligent design, you know, just right there. Intelligent you orcas yeah, at least. Yeah, like you couldn't, like, Darwin, you can't explain that one, you know, that's what I'm Well, reckon. they're adaptive, intelligent hunters. Oh, right, yeah. A bit of communication, and away they went. Oh. That's, um, that's just so cool. It, it's like you, you hear about things like dolphin speak and whale speak and yes. scientists who go out and go, ooh, and try to sort of attract the But no, this is real communication here. This, this is, is this is teaming up. This, this is, is team effort like on Sesame Street. But the problem is that, of course, the law of the tongue got broken. Oh, no. And somebody decided that they weren't going to leave the whale out for the orcas to get the tongue. And not only was that part of it broken, but they also somebody went off and killed one of the killer whales. Oh. And that broke the deal and they stopped coming. Um, and that was the end of whaling in Eden, oh because God. the humans weren't really good enough to whale on their own, and the offshore whalers were killing most of the whales anyway. And that was the end of that. Um, more on killer whales in Marineland in Ontario. Killer whales have invented a new way of getting food independent of their keepers. He's found that if they regurgitate some fish and hides just under the surface, a seabird will fly down to eat the fish, so he can leap up out of the water and catch the bird in his jaws. <laughs> Love it. And he's taught his fellow orcas the trick. Now, we haven't seen non-primate species in captivity teaching new tricks to others of their kind. So you can teach an old murderous thing under the, under the water a new trick, basically. <laughs> That's right. Well, the trick is now, is Marineland going to try and stop them from doing this when the school kiddies are visiting? <laughs> and now onto the military dolphins. Dolphins have been trained by the American and Russian navies since the Cold War, attacking the breathing apparatus of divers mapping out minefields, and as suicide bombers. Nice. Very nice. Strapping on bombs, telling the dolphins where to go. I've heard about that. that and the, the, the big plus about that, as far as um, the military is concerned, is that they're, they're not picked up by um, by sonar or, or other detection devices. And even if they are, they say, oh, just a dolphin. <laughs> just, a, just a dolphin going on its merry way. The ABC's foreign correspondent visited the Russian ex-military dolphins. These are the ones that have retired they're being exploited for new age healing of sick children at $8,000 US a treatment. Unfortunately, the dolphins are large animals that excrete a large amount of waste into the enclosed spaces the children are swimming in, and the kids are getting bacterial infections instead of being healed. <laughs> oh, it just, it's just heartwarming stuff. It's crazy Russians. Good science. ABC also visited the Russian Navy, who still run a dolphin training program. Like, the dolphins actually hold things in their flippers. Um, during Hurricane Katrina... American-trained military dolphins were washed out to sea, armed with toxic dark guns for shooting divers who might, or might not, be terrorists. This is where the money went instead of fixing the levees or organising airlifts. See, this is what Australia needs. Australia doesn't have enough dolphins patrolling the borders armed to the teeth. Do dolphins have teeth? Well, 
This is the thing. How do they operate the dart guns? Well, they have cybernetic implants. Get out. To let them choose anaesthetizing darts and receive radio instructions. (laughs) Of course they do. Of course they do. And they've got to know where to nudge the unconscious terrorists so they can be interrogated. Yes. Yes. So they can go, what's that? Flip. What's that? You got a terrorist? So you're saying if... um if we're, we're planning a dive trip to uh, the southwest uh, coast of Florida, it might be a, um, a bad idea. Well, the dolphins have got to run out of darts at some time, and maybe they'll return to their trainers when the hurricane season's over. That's, uh, that was Ian Wolf with all of your murderous sea beast <laughs> news here on Discovery. You can see videos of my interviews about science fiction, odour, masks, the search for life on Mars, brain development microbiology, synthetic chemistry, and the science of cuddling animals on the Diffusion YouTube channel. Subscribe and like at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker, or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Contributing to the program were Tim Baines, Matt Clark, and Chris Stewart. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains at 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is now narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from one of the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.